You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 64 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. The Code of Conduct is the holy script for us as tax practitioners. It outlines the guiding principles for everything we do in our work. And falling short of the Code of Conduct can literally mean the end of us. It can mean a cancellation of our registration and hence a loss of our livelihood with everything that this entails. So being aware of the Code of Conduct is important for us. I ask Ian Taylor, the chair of the Tax Petitioners Board, to walk us through the Code of Conduct. And he kindly said yes. It sounds like a very boring question, but it, what is the Code of Conduct? So the Code of Conduct is contained within the Tax Agent Services Act, and it, it is the establishment of a set of ethical and professional standards that a registered tax practitioner must meet and continue to meet. Now, you could argue that this might not be necessary because uh, as a professional uh, member of an association, they're also subject to codes of conduct, etc. But not everybody's a member of a professional association. So clearly the Act itself, the Tax Agent Services Act, sets out the code of conduct. Uh, and that is, as I said, the ethical and professional standards that we expect must be met and continue to be met once registered. So the obligations... Uh, for tax financial advisors, for tax, for tax agents and BAS agents are all the same. And we have released documentation on our website to assist people to understand how their obligations work. So the code itself contains 14 specific items uh, that people need to ensure that they comply with. They're in five separate categories. If we start with the first category, that's honesty and integrity. There are three items in this uh, category. Uh, firstly, that you must always act honestly and with integrity. Secondly, you must comply with the tax laws in the conduct of your personal affairs. Thirdly, if you receive money or other property from or on behalf of a client and you hold that money or property on trust, you must account to your client for it. Under the heading, second heading of independence, general category independence, there are two requirements. That is, first, firstly here that you must act lawfully in the best interests of your client. Secondly, you must have in place adequate arrangements for the management of conflicts of interest. The and, third category yeah, of confidentiality relates uh, to ensuring that you maintain the confidentiality of all of your client information, and that means you can't disclose any information to a third party unless you've either got a legal obligation to do so or you've got client permission to do so. And the fact that these three categories, so honesty and integrity, independence and confidentiality, are listed first, does it mean they are usually the three areas that are most of an issue? Are these three areas the areas where you find most complaints about or where you have most cases? Not, not entirely. I no? mean, clearly, clearly we, what well, we get... Issues around all of those. Uh, we do also get a lot under the issue of competence, and particularly code items nine and ten under competence, which relate to taking reasonable care. So, if I do turn to the competence ones, and the, the, that's the fourth category, if you like, that uh, is competence, and under that requirement, you must ensure that the tax services that you provide is provided competently. 
And that's where CPE then comes in because you must maintain your skills and knowledge relevant to the services you provide. So that's a CPE requirement in the code itself, but it's also an ongoing registration requirement. Uh, and as I said, code items 9 and 10 are that you take reasonable care in ascertaining a client's state of affairs. And once you've done that, you've got to take reasonable care to ensure that the tax laws are applied correctly to those client circumstances. Um, so if you're looking at competency and a client or practitioner providing appropriate, competent advice, then it very often occurs that if it's not competent, it'll be because you haven't taken the reasonable care in 9 and 10 to make sure you get it right. So they're often linked. There are often links between issues of best interest and uh, and also adequate arrangements in place for management of conflict of interest. There are often issues around the trust account management. And it, so in essence, although it doesn't refer to specifically trust accounts, if you do receive money, as we said, you've got to hold it on trust for your client. So that should be in a trust account arrangement. Um, and we do get a lot of queries and questions about uh, whether or not a, a, a practitioner has returned a refund to that particular client. Now, the other and final category of the code, the fifth category, is what's generally called other responsibilities. We don't get a lot of uh, under the first couple of these. The first uh, number of code item 11 is that you must not knowingly obstruct the proper administration of the tax laws. You must advise your client of their rights and obligations under the tax laws. And 13, you must uh, maintain professional indemnity insurance. We've talked about that. And 14, you must respond to the requests and directions from the board in a timely, responsible and reasonable manner. If one was to point at the main culprits, it's the trust accounts under honesty and integrity, it's independence, it's uh, confidentiality of client data, and then it's competence yep. around taking reasonable care. Yes, those exactly. are pro Those are the main culprits that you get most complaints about. Correct. But we do also have a number that do fit into the 14 category of code on 14, and that is pa people just don't respond to requests and directions from the board. So that's usually fairly fatal <laughs> uh, because if we ask a person to provide us with information and they don't, then we've really got no option mm. but to terminate. So that can cause some problems. And you also mentioned 13, so professional indemnity insurance is also... Yeah, so, so they are professional indemnity insurance and also CPE, as we've already mentioned in the context of registration requirement, but they're also code items. So as we said, item 8 of the code says that you must maintain knowledge and skills relevant to the tax services you provide, and 13 says you must maintain the professional indemnity insurance. So they're in the code, but they're also ongoing requirements in any event. Could you share some statistics around compliance cases? So... A couple of things, firstly, and it's really good news that the majority of practitioners do the right thing, and it's up around the 99% plus mark that practitioners are doing the right thing. That's fantastic. But we do get complaints and referrals that do require us to take action, and we get approximately 1,600 complaints a year which we need to deal with. So 1,600 complaints over the space of a year, 77,000 it's not a huge percentage, but nevertheless, it's too many, 1,600 of uh, complaints by clients. Some of those complaints come from uh, 
from other practitioners. Some of them also come from the ATO, but the bulk of them come from clients of practitioners who know that if they've got an issue, they can refer the matter to the Tax Practitioners Board. So we deal with those. In the last 12 months, we actually finalised over 2,500 cases. Um, sometimes when a case comes in or a complaint comes in, a person may be subject to more than one of the code breaches. So it's unlikely. I mean, for example, if it's a, if it's a uh, issue around the holding of money on property or trust uh, for a client and you haven't returned it, then that also could be an incompetent service as well. So there's often a, 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 range, of like, issues. a, a range of issues that are identified as being a particular case. We also have a number of cases where a particular practitioner is complained, there's a complaint comes in from more than one client in relation to a practitioner. And this is, this is quite typical that a, a practitioner who does the wrong thing for one client does it for more than one. All right? So we do get that overlap of cases. So we, we do need to deal with all these cases and and it does take up a lot of the board's time in dealing with these cases because it it can be a time-consuming process to investigate. You've got to re, we've got to work on the basis of presumption of innocence in the first instance, if you like, and the practitioner is given the opportunity to defend their position. They're given due course or, or the due process, if you like, to ensure that from a legal perspective, they've had every opportunity to put their case and for that to be considered by the board. However, there are those cases which do get through then to the board conduct committee, which we call it, and that's a process where a number of board members, usually four because of the point I made before about appellable decisions, it's got to be a minimum of three. Usually we have four in cases any conflict of interest, but the, the decisions then made by the board as to what sanction we might apply in respect of a particular um, case. So the sanctions we can apply are firstly a written caution and uh, that could be in many instances followed by an order. So we could have, we can have a, a written caution in the first instance. We can have a written caution with an order and the order might be to uh, complete a course of study to update their CPE, to do a particular thing where we see they're, they're deficient in terms of their practice management. So it might be a course in practice management. It might be a course in trust management. So that's an order. We order them to do something in a specified period of time. Obviously, in the worst cases, we, we get to a point of either suspending or termination. Right? But where we do that, of course... We're conscious of the fact that that has a significant impact in terms of the practitioner's financial position because it means you're cutting off their income mm. supply. So we don't do that lightly, but we will, if there's any cases involving fraud, dishonesty, defrauding clients, those sorts of things, we'll take pretty strict action when any of those sorts of circumstances are in, involved. In many other cases, you can get a situation where we, we might err on the practitioner's side, give them the benefit of the doubt, isolated cases, not likely to recur, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So we do take a fairly pragmatic approach to it all. The other thing to bear in mind is that the board members are independent and we're all practitioners of one sort. So we're not. it's not as if we've got public servants sitting in judgment of whether an action by a practitioner is appropriate or inappropriate. It is practitioners judging practitioners. 
and so I think that's a, a good space to be in. It's a good uh, process that we have in that context. So if we do apply a sanction which is an order, a suspension or a termination, or indeed, as I mentioned, reviewable decisions can also include where we fail to renew a registration or we reject the registration application. Those decisions are appellable. They are independently reviewed by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal under the Administrative Appeals Tribunal Act of 1975. So application is made by the, by the applicant to the AAT and it's then independently reviewed by the AAT. The AAT can stand in the shoes of the board and reverse our decision. Over the years of operations of the, T- of the TPB, we've had something in excess of 110 cases that have, gone, that have gone to the AAT on review. A number of those have then been further appealed to the Federal Court. But at the AAT, I think it's about 94, 95% of all the cases that have gone there have been found in favour of the TPB. Mm. There have only been about four cases where there's been a reversal. Four cases in how many years? In in, uh, in eight years. Wow. Yeah, mm. so, so we think we get it pretty right. And... Uh, and the, and the treatment that we hand out is appropriate in the circumstances. Welcome back. 1,600 complaints a year sounds like a lot. But of course, Ian Taylor is right that if you compare to the 77,000 registered tax practitioners, then it doesn't sound so big anymore. In the next episode, episode 65, we will talk more about the small business CGT concessions. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.